Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is uh, Bart Kamarts. I'm a professor of politics and communication um, at the Media and Communication Department here uh, at uh, LSE. And I will be uh, the chair of this uh, event. So let me take me take the opportunity to uh, welcome uh, you all to this uh, public uh, event, uh, both uh, those that are here in the audience as well as uh, following us uh, online. Uh, let me also extend my warm welcome to our distinguished speaker, Professor Gargi uh, Bhattacharya. Um, last spring, uh, we uh, started an internal conversation in our department about thinkers that are uh, influential uh, to, in relation to our research. Uh, and one of the people that we collectively, collectively identified uh, was Professor Bhattacharya. So we are very happy that they are here to talk to us about a topic that is close to their as well as our heart, namely racial capitalism and why this remains uh, important. Professor Bhattacharya is an honorary senior fe research fellow at the Sarah Parker Riemann Center for the Study of Racism and Racialization, which is part of UCL's Institute of Advanced Studies. Their research focuses on issues of inequality, social justice, and state practices. And Professor Badacharia has published widely on uh, these topics, and some of her books include uh, Dangerous Brown Man, Crisis, Austerity, and Everyday Life, Rethinking Racial Capitalism, the multi-authored Empire's Endgame, and her most recent uh, book, The Futures of Racial Capitalism. Before I give the floor to uh, Professor Bhattacharya, let me uh, ask you to put your mobile phones on silent uh, uh, to avoid disrupting uh, the event. Uh, uh, Professor Bhattacharya will speak for about 30 to 40 minutes after we will open the floor uh, for uh, questions. So without further ado, uh, can I invite uh, Can you tell me about Okay. Um, I can see some quizzical looks. Actually, in reality, I only have an associate role with um, the Sarah Parker Remen Center. I've got a, a full-time proper job at the University of Arts and the Decolonizing Arts Institute. So yeah, for everyone who thought, that person is not there. You're quite right, I wasn't there. Um, thanks so much for coming. Um, of course, as with all these things, a person says yes, and then many other events happen in the world, and time passes, and it no longer seems to make quite the same sense of why such a talk had room. And I hope some of what we'll talk about is like what we're all up to at all. Along with many others, I'm guessing, including people in this room, I'm having quite an extreme crisis of confidence about what the business of intellectual life is, what our job is, why we read, why we think, why we discuss, things that I've spent my whole life doing. Because, of course, serious thought is supposed to make a difference. That's meant to be how we make a basis on which to change the world. But it seems to me increasingly I already felt it, but given the horrors of the last number of months, it seems to me that our tools of thought and analysis work only in retrospect. We can see and evidence and argue only once the thing is done. Then we can document, then we can see what happened, then we can say these are the structures of power that worked or did not work, this is who lived and this is who died, this is who is the perpetrator and this is who is not. Too late. Too late. That's what I really think about my whole business, and I'd really welcome a chance to speak to all of you about how, how could we do something which is not always too late. So what I've been trying to think about but before October, you know, in the, in the, actually in the gap between... I wrote the first book about racial capitalism some time ago, which might... Everyone who knows me will know that most of my life is my children laughing their heads off about me working on racial capitalism. So I wrote this book about racial capitalism 
which just dropped a moment when there was in this country a very sudden reawakening of interest in the topic of racial capitalism. So then I was in these different circuits. Since that book was out, I've been thinking about this last book that's just come out, which is really a question to myself about how to do intellectual work that is not always too late. People will be aware because, of course, how can we not be thinking about what scholarship about genocide has said in our moment, that the 10 stages of genocide are, is a very collaborative project. It's a collaborative project that brings together many insights from the work of scholars of genocide and of racism. And the whole point is to look at what happened in order to identify what might be happening. The point is to halt the escalation through intervention. It's not to have the final word. It's not to say, oh, I wrote that essay and look at the archive I made of that horror. It's meant to be to use learning so suddenly the learning is not too late. Now, racial capitalism is a different kind of framework. It's not framed as a crime. But I've been trying to think for some years about whether we could develop ways of understanding using the terms of racial capitalism that are more preparation than retrospective denunciation. Because I feel jumpy about that. <clears throat> so uh, forgive me if some of this is out of step because when you do these things you can't tell who comes. And I know some of you probably um, everything I say is boring because you're already thought it and some of you might have been the people who wrote it and some of you might be at a different point in your educational journey and some of you might just come in out of the cold because it's centre of London so really I'm not trying to talk down to any of you I'm trying to in every slide say enough so that if you've come in by accident you don't have to feel oh the people next to you know the secret of it and you know all other things so I often say very obvious things I think it's worth always reminding ourselves why there is so, so much talk about racial capitalism now. now. Not only my kids laughing, but a kind of like, you look at journals now, across the humanities and social sciences, every special issue has got a, you know, a section on racial capitalism. You know, everyone's writing there. It's become a bit of a standing joke across disciplines, I think. You write your journal title and then at the end you put, in racial capitalism, as if that somehow elevates it to timeliness. Of course, one of the reasons why we're all revisiting that set of debates isn't from the academy at all. It's the kind of trajectory that comes from the streets. It's because the global movement for black lives explicitly referenced the framing of racial capitalism in the kinds of demands and analysis that is put forward. And there's a whole circuit which doesn't necessarily pass through the university at all, where people are understanding battle against systemic violence through the lens, analytic lens of racial capitalism. So that's one thing, I think. And that always kind of gives me some, some kind of um, solace that I'm not only a bandwagon jumper, that there is something in the political ether in our moment that brings that topic to many people's attention. All of that reverberation from the street is deeply linked to the reinvigoration of abolitionist thinking which itself is intensified by this kind of cumulative, cross-generational accumulation of disillusionment with the attempt to combat racism through reformist approaches. So I think that that's also why people come to um, the analysis of racial capitalism, that they're looking at, you know, people have, partly include myself in this, people have sat in a lot of thankless meetings and done a lot of filling in of forms and done a lot of monitoring of people in power and done a lot of lobbying of decision makers and a lot of counting of how many of what kind of person gets to do what kind of thing and yet the violence of systemic racism seems no less than it was and if anything might be even more. That cumulative disillusionment with that way of thinking which is what also informs the re-sparking of an abolitionist discourse is also part of the interest in racial capitalism. But how do we understand racism not as something that happens between people of ill will, not that is fixated on the interpersonal, not that something that you can teach people out of, like if only you ate a few more samosa then we'd, somehow we'd be, in, we'd be in the ball game of the post-racial, 
and also something that cannot be addressed without burning down some of the structures that make it, without the abolition, the things that you cannot reform, the things that you cannot reform this, that more and more things we're learning to say, not only the police, but then all the things that make the police what they are, all the ways that many people from many different um, political trajectories, I think, are learning to say, maybe you can't reform this. Into that space, the analytic terms of racial capitalism come to say to us, well, actually, then maybe let's renew, reinvigorate, revisit our analytic terms for understanding what a totalizing global system of dispossession, of racialized dispossession is, because that's a better thing to think about than is the CEO of this company a racist? Can we teach this person out of their racism? Is this person too ignorant? So I'm already talking much too slowly. I'm going to hurry up now. This, I know, a lot of people in Rome would know this, but for anyone who doesn't, you should see this beautiful man. This is Cedric Robinson, the man who is so often quoted and misquoted in the debates about racial capitalism. Robinson writes a very, very influential book called Black Marxism, The Making of a Black Radical Tradition. Gets published in 1983. I always kind of say, if you read, really properly read that book, you'll get an inflection of what the very bad-tempered debates of the left in the 1980s were like. Some of you might remember that. Some of you might not wish to know it. But anyway, that's clearly part of what's happening. And he makes, I think there's three big ideas to take out of that. Lots of other things, but the three big ones that I kind of try and run with. One is that however much we think we might have been taught that capitalism makes us all the same, so that we're interchangeable, so that any of our labor power can be positioned in any market, so that the things that make us different from each other are stripped away, Robinson says, well, actually, perhaps capitalism remakes itself through differentiating us, not by homogenizing us that it squats in the pre-existing differences, it kind of concocts new differences between us, it positions us in different fragments of the economy, it makes us in parallel different speeds of economic life, it doesn't make us interchangeable and the same. Linked to that, a point which now feels so out of time, but I really want to say there was a time when people would come and tell you to come outside into the car park around this debate, is there one trajectory of capitalist development that for a long time there's quite a strong you know, and well-founded set of beliefs across the Western left, certainly, and I think beyond the Western left, that there is only one set of stages in capitalist development. And in fact, that's believed beyond the left, that development discourse is also deeply invested in that, that, that the idea of building the market, of what industrialization is, that democracy can only come from a version of a certain kind of industrialization, that that's the only model of what capitalist development is. Robinson, in a way that actually was being echoed by many different kinds of scholars and activists at that time, and now feels like such commonsensical stuff it's hardly worth saying, is that well, clearly, if you look at different spaces, there isn't one trajectory of capitalist development. But there isn't a set of stages that every space will go through before reaching the longed-for endpoint of post-capitalist nirvana. And linked to both of those two points is like, who is the agent of anti-capitalism? This is, again, the kind of thing that people brought up in certain political traditions get very, very upset about. People who I've been very close to, some of whom have been in my family, I'd like to say. You know, I'm not, not certainly not an anti-Marxist. I'm absolutely schooled, given birth to in that tradition. But Robinson is saying that the kind of model of the proletariat, which is so fixated on an idea of industrial production that it can't see other ways of being positioned by economic forces, stops us from seeing who might have the agency to unmake capitalism. And in particular, then he points to the black radical tradition and says that the many ways in which the African diaspora, including through slave revolt, including through the Haitian Revolution, and including through other ways of kicking against the violent forces of capitalism, must be understood as anti-capitalist agents, means that we need to stop having a mechanistic idea of who the proletarian subject is, right? 
I must speed up, otherwise we'll never get to the questions. Right, I've been trying to think again about this. This blurry cover is the new book, newish book. Obviously not very good at screenshots, sorry. But <laughs> I'll try and tell you some things about it. <clears throat> what I've tried to do is ask myself, firstly, I think that racial capitalism as an analytic term is a question, not a final theory. It's the question about why, um, given the horrors of many people's, if not everyone's life, why is solidarity so elusive? That's what I think the question is. Racial capitalism is a way of summarizing the many ways in which we are divided from each other despite the beast of capital wrecking our lives in parallel ways. And it's a way of trying to think about how we are dispersed, how race becomes mobilized, how we become increasingly different from each other despite having apparently shared interests. So I then try to ask myself, what's happening? What's happening in the world now? And I have these four themes, and I'll try and just say something about the four themes. Perhaps then we can all talk. One is, what impact does the platform form have? I'm not an economist, that probably people who might be economists in the room can tell. But you don't have to be an economist to notice the ways in which the, um, the platform has become the kind of most powerful corporate form. And I'd suggest, you know, I'm not suggesting if the first person suggests it, the hegemonic corporate form of our time, probably the next time. Now this, I don't know if I'm really allowed to use PricewaterhouseCoopers slide, so I had to make sure I kept their name at the bottom. But you've probably seen this. For the last couple of years, and I think this only shows you 2022 and 2023, if you look at the top global companies, you've got Apple, Microsoft, Saudi Arabian oil, so remember, that's not a to nothing is a total switch. Saudi Arabian oil, which is comes location, rest of the world, I think that's all. <laughs> it's worth having the slide just for that bit, isn't it? Then Alphabet, who are another communications one, then Amazon. Now, if you go down to... I've only got 1 to 20. It's not that the older corporate forms, the big corporate forms of the 20th century are not there. You've got Johnson & Johnson, you've got JP Morgan, you've got Procter & Gamble, but they're alongside a corporate landscape in which platforms have taken over. You know, that's where the energy and corporate expansion and big money-making is. Alongside that, I mean, I don't know enough about Belt and Road, which I always misremember and say Belt and Braces, and people say, oh, no, not Belt and Braces. Belt, belt, you know, China's Belt and Road, the new Silk Road, is absolutely, I think, a state-led platform economy project. It's about uh, melding material infrastructure and digital and technical and communicational infrastructure. That is the model of a platform. It's about sewing together diff um, different kinds of economic activity so that um, the capacity of the whole is bigger than any part, but that every part is dependent on the platform holder. Watch and see. <clears throat> I think, this is back to racial capitalism, that platforms, even as they ascend, and let's, who knows what comes next, disrupt the established spatial relations of the passing phase of racial capitalism. The passing phase of racial capitalism had a much more static imagination of how racialized um, status mapped onto economic location and positioning and activity. A lot of that gets kind of disrupted and thrown around. In particular, there's a mismatch between the infrastructure needed for life and that needed for this shifting moment of capital. I know that some of the infrastructure of life that we may be used to, of course, has been fought for by ordinary people. I don't wish to suggest that capital just gave us water just gave us an energy infrastructure, just gave us ways of um, just about getting by alongside the process of production. But the last 150 to 200 years of capitalist urbanization was something like a battle between the force of capital and the forces of life and a kind of accommodation in many places. It's not how it is now, I don't think. And we can see some of the disruptions of former urban spaces and the um, mismatch between what is need, needed to ke um, keep alive concentrations of humanity and a different kind of dispersal of capital. My suggestion is that um, 
we're no longer in a moment where capitalist ascendancy between corporations happens through massification. Long past Fordism, but even long past the later 20th century disorganised capital. Now, competitive edge arises from logistics in the broadest sense, the integration of multiple sectors, speed and efficiency of communications and transactions, a whole different kind of infrastructure. People probably know that one of the things that Amazon has done in the last five years is move a huge amount of its um, liquidity into building its infrastructural capacity. That's echoed in other kinds of corporate form as well. So it's not, used to be like, when, you, when I used to teach about Fordism in the 80s, you used to say, well, if you want to make cars, the way you become the one car maker standing is you make a bigger and bigger factory with a more and more intensified production process. You massify, you bring your workers to you, and you bring down the cost per unit of your car. And eventually, all the other car makers, they'll fall, and you'll be the one left. But that's kind of like the cartoon story of Fordism. Then we've had several de decades past that, and we like, oh, what's going on? And now we're in a moment where most of that list of 20, they're only the top 20 out of you know, a list that PricewaterhouseCooper says is, is 100, and then there's many others. But the ones who are in the ascendant, the ones who are going to start winning their own internal class battle, they're not into massification now. They're into platformization. And that disperses us differently. I must be quicker than this. <clears throat> so in terms of shaping everyday life, platformization runs alongside the dereliction of infrastructure, which might mean different things in different places. I'm particularly thinking of the death of the American city, which was a kind of model of when there's a kind of coincidence between the infrastructure of life for some and the needs of capital. <clears throat> So I think in tandem with climate catastrophe, platformization is likely to put more of us on the move, not necessarily across borders, but with a different kind of chasing of the means of life, the tasks, you know, what will keep us alive. And that feeds into my next theme, which is debt, indebtedness. <clears throat> the first book I wrote about racial capitalism, following on, you know, reading other people's stuff, really centers wagedness as the kind of marker of um, the most, if not most privileged, the most recognized economic actor. And then degrees of distance from wagedness or um, subordination within the terms of wagedness is what racialization becomes. So the, the informal economy, systemic discrimination in the labor market, um, not being able to access the formal economy and instead um, having to hustle through ways of making money through the realm of social reproduction, but in a kind of parasitic relation to the wage economy. Wagedness, even when I wrote my first book, was, wasn't very plausible that that was the center. Even the big international institutions, despite what still happens in the name of development, really admit that most of the world is not going to center their life around a stable wage through their life. That what we think of as standard work that might sustain life and is paid through the wage is a minority sport and even more of a minority sport for the global young. Even in places like Britain where we're still actually moderately rich, and it's hard for me to say that when people are leaving their newborn babies in the street, that doesn't feel like richness, but still, richer than some places, you can see, I think, the generational shift in terms of expectations of work, access to work, and what counts as economic activity that can keep you alive. So instead of the move into formal wagedness that we might have been trained to look for, which was this, both a racially privileged status and the status of economic recognition, instead survival occurs through a combination of value scraping from the realm of social reproduction, debt, and often varieties of precarious wagesness. Work a bit, borrow a bit, hustle a bit. That sounds like urban and even peri-urban life across the globe to me. But what that does is it mixes up a previous set of racialized hierarchies. I think that's one of the reasons why there's some 
some of the white rage we see and some of the rage we see from other groups who might have thought of themselves as the privileged grouping comes from that dispersal of a relative stability in their lives that is no longer theirs. What are the wages of whiteness if no one has a stable wage? What are the wages of whiteness if the social wage that accompanies a stable wage are disappearing for other reasons? I think, well, people can tell me this, but I feel like some of the enragedness you can see in Britain is a bit like that. Certainly some of the accounts of the states seem like that. Um, but I also think that's, that's in flux, isn't it? Because you also see the possibility of new alliances by people who kind of think, my whiteness is as fictional as any other arbitrary privilege. And I think we're seeing both those things at the same time. Right, this is just so suddenly felt guilty for not trying to prove anything. I'm not trying to prove anything. I have a set of ideas. Yeah. But in case you don't know, in this country, and we're just the same as most of the countries where you can record debt, average household debt is really going up. A lot of that is credit card debt in this country. Office for Budget Responsibility thinks that um, between the end of 23 and the end of 25 that there'll be another 250 billion in household debt added, even in the year to November 2023, I think that's huge. An 8.6% rise in outstanding credit card balances. So firstly, a lot of this country are living on their credit cards, probably people in this room as well, because I know what it's like to live in London. How else can you do it? If not your credit card, someone else. And that the ability to pay back that debt is receding. Household debt does include mortgages, and there have been more mortgages put out, but this is, this is just for the, the 22 to 23 numbers that um, this charity, the Money Charity, put together. There was a 900 million decrease in mortgage lending in the month, but a nearly 800 million increase in consumer credit lending. So even in the balance of what people are borrowing, who can borrow for bricks and mortar? I need to borrow my credit card for groceries. Again, you don't even need me to tell you that. You don't need to be an academic to know that. You just have to have one eye open. Right, sorry, I'm trying to speed up so other people can talk. Come on, come on, Gargi. Rush on a bit. Carcerality, you know this one, so you don't need me to tell you it. Um, the big guns who help us understand racial capitalism um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Angela Davis, um, Robin Kelly to some extent, all come back to issues of imprisonment, not least because the ways the US economy is so deeply um, imbricated in a carceral system that it's very hard to look at US capitalism and not look at carceral systems. But I think, partly sitting in Britain, because I don't work on the States, I work on Britain and Europe, um, some of that idea of carcerality made a different sense alongside an earlier moment of massified production. You know, the prison is like the warning to the people in the factory. You know, that very, very famous, famous old book, again, I used to teach this in another lifetime, you know, the prison and the factory. And the worker is always meant to be able to see the prison on the hill. So you think, oh, I hate going to work, but I don't want to go to prison. And so you kind of keep that both the visual and the spatial relations are hand in hand. We don't have that massified economy in the same way. Instead, we have an extension of carcerality into more and more aspects of life. My suggestion is, and again, please do tell me if this makes sense or not to you, I think, certainly in this country and in other spaces that I have interactions with, almost all interactions with the state. One of the things I was saying to another group of people last week is that, of course, even in its moment of high welfare, the UK state seemed like a, was, no, didn't seem like, was a highly punitive state for the poor. Um, I don't know if any of you have read a, a wonderful but heartbreaking book called, Lands is it called Landscape for a Good Woman from the 80s, which is about, yeah, well, people can tell me later what it's about. It's about how the, the help, helping state actually just feels like the cops. Cops without uniforms come to your door and you have, and you know that you're in if they don't put, um, lock you up, they take your kids, that it's punitive relation. That's always been there in the welfare system. 
I think that's extended hugely, not least through the process of credentialism. So now even quite middle-class people are fearful in their interactions as they try to gain state services because the ways in which we are meant to show our credentials mean that we are in danger of being punished for claiming incorrectly. And again, I can see some nods in the room, so if some people have had to try and claim things lately, that can even be um, in your interaction if your child goes to school, in your interactions of trying to get health care. You can see all the ways um, the intersection with bordering makes that greater. It also means that there's a coercive element to how much of our personal entitlement we have to prove because someone else is meant to be getting deported, but that means we might put a foot wrong in the fall. All those, all those forms which say, have you answered honestly, you understand that you may be subject to this punishment, which is now seems nearly everything, that is a way of... Um, inserting a castle logic in our interactions with public life. Sorry, I need to hurry up. Right. <clears throat> so I think that kind of spread of castle tactics reflects the disruption of the terms of work and life. We're increasingly policed as vagabonds, people who are out of place need to prove our right to be in place, as illicit renters who are already in debt, as people always defaulting. <clears throat> And I think that as um, capital seems to at once render more of a surplus to requirements and devises new techniques to capture both our waking and sleeping moments, and both those things are happening, aren't they? Both kind of getting pushed off the end of livability, and we want everything. We want your dream, dream energies. That is also part of the algorithm. The disciplines and punishments doled out in the name of capitalist subjectification also extend and become less predictable. I don't know what to say about, apart from that. that um, this is probably my one big headline, that capitalist subjectification, it seems to me in our time, for many people, including those who until recently might have believed themselves to be relatively privileged subjects, it centers the experience of fear and not much promise. And even in my lifetime, there were promises, however empty they were. So I'm nearly into the end part. Last, so, platforms, debt, prisons, borders. <clears throat> borders, in some ways, like, you know what? Borders, like, we all know how to talk about so much, I'll try and run ahead. What I'd like want to say about borders is that despite the extremely loud politicisation of bordering in our time, my hunch is that something slight has changed, a slight change in emphasis, and when I say change, that's probably over the last 30 years, in which the process of bordering is increasingly dependent on cooperation between states or state-like entities in order to create spaces of non-sovereignty. I'm trying to explain what I mean by that. When I'm taught the idea, you know, when I'm a student and I'm taught the idea of sovereignty of what managing your border is, there's kind of an idea that um, sovereign states, their aspiration, their logic is to absolutely exhaust the space of the earth. So like, I'm this sovereign state, I put my boot up right up to here, you're my neighbouring sovereign state, you put your boot up right up to here, and our tussle is about the inches around the boot. But there's no space between the boots. You know, that's like the... Um, the, you know, the terrible carving up of the African continent in that, you know, they don't leave bits outside, they cut the whole cake because they think all of it belongs to them. What we're seeing is forms of cooperation between states around bordering that leave spaces outside anyone's responsibility. Sometimes they're called corridors, sometimes they're just the bound, you know, the border, the camp, you know, the whole battle about who's responsible for Calais is part of that, but certainly some of the terrible things about people passing through Libya on the Libyan border, um, other spaces, are ways in which this collaborative managing of the movement of unwanted people pass some people out of the responsibility of any state or state-like entity. I think that's pretty scary. And I'd like to say as one of my end miserable points that I think cooperative bordering is an aspect of class war in a time of climate catastrophe. Because it's not only about who can be excluded from particular national boundaries, 
it's also a machinery to squeeze some humans into the spaces of non-citizenship, of constant displacement, of routes of mobility that only via narrow and hugely exploitative corridors, of relegation to the new wastelands of our time. And I've already said it. I think that's a central plank of global class war in this time of climate catastrophe. So what the new book is about is to say things don't change, stay the same. And if I want to th be not too late, my job and I think your job and all our job is at least to put our heads together about what it is to find ways of thinking that not always too late, not always in retrospect. <clears throat> in the effort to remake itself as the only possible future, capital inhabits and remakes divisions and disperses between and of humans. And raciality still does its murderous work in allocating the arbitrary statuses that lead to some life or early death, but maybe not always in such familiar or predictable ways. The devil changes shape, and perhaps the force of goodness and reason need to become similarly agile. Thanks very much. Thanks so much. Um, we will start by taking some questions from the room, and uh, Luam will also be monitoring uh, online uh, questions. So I, I propose that we first kind of see whether there's a question in the room. I think there's a mic coming your way. Like a wedding, they give you a little pen in a holder. I'm going to use that one. I don't get to go to many weddings, as you probably guessed. Um, thank you very much for that highly interesting uh, presentation. I was just wondering if the state and all of these like super powerful platforms are kind of perpetuating this new capitalism, then kind of like what hope does like anti-capitalist agency really have in this evolving world? And um, I'm aware of a concept like capitalist realism. Like, is it even possible for us to escape this kind of um, I don't know? very uh, sticky, like, you know, state of play at the moment. Great question. Do I just answer? <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, and thank you for asking it, because I think people... I'm aware that if you just hear me talk for half an hour, it sounds so desperately miserable. You think, like, go away and just top yourself. I'm so sorry. It feels like, <laughs> what is the point of that? And, of course, that can never be the point, can it? The reason why um, we try to understand the machinery of how capital wrecks our lives, is to find the spaces of commonality and what our agency might be. But I don't quite know what that might be yet. So I'm schooled in, I'm schooled to think that we are inevitably grave diggers of capital and that we will win. And because I'm very cheerful, because I'm kind of schooled in that slightly, you know, pink, you know, rosy colored sunglasses idea of the world. And yet everything I learn about the world shows that, um, that almost inevitability that an earlier left had about that, of course, capital must implode and we are the forces that will help it implode because it's reliant on us, doesn't seem to fit the data of what I have. Now, I still think that a system that steals the life force from the creatures that it's dependent on has a limited lifespan. Of course, it's our job to find how to make that lifespan limited. I've been saying to people that I think some of the talk about racial capitalism that does make me feel better about the misery of saying it is that I think we're already starting to see ways in which people see each other in quite different moments of struggle. That's not quite the same as developing a new overarching revolutionary subject or having a mass movement or having a political project that is overwhelmingly anti-capitalist globally, but it is um, a shift away from the ways in which we've been dispersed and divided from each other before. I think it's come from the kind of moment of crisis we're in. I think you can certainly see it in London, the ways in which people's organizing now moves between things which early in my lifetime were very separate. You know, the, the moves between um, politics against state violence and state racism politics around workplace exploitation and precaritization, politics around bordering and um, de um, deportation, politics around many other forms of violence and how the personal folds back into the state structures of violence. I think you can feel that in London, that people are moved between those spaces. That doesn't mean we're there yet, 
But the job of understanding is first for us to be able to say to each other that there are, we're not alone in any of those moments of violence. But I don't have an overarching theory. And I also, I should say this, again, you're probably not that audience, but um, some people may have been in um, particular versions of the whiter left in which some of the more senior members, perhaps especially the men, are extremely upset by the idea that um, the framing of the proletariat that they have been raised in and taught might just not do it. I mean, that's... If they don't shout, they cry, man. And, you know, I feel like crying as well, because, you know, if not the proletariat, who is going to save us? But better for us to say to each other that we still need to save each other what would be what would be a political agency that would do that, which might include who we have thought of previously as the industrial proletariat, but might be other kinds of dispossession. It might be an expansion of what the terms of proletarianization are, which I think is core to the theorization of racial capitalism. Certainly the move between the realms of production, informal economy and social reproduction, which we're seeing both in scholarly spaces and in organizing spaces. All of that is about how we can see the beast together, isn't it? First, we have to see the beast together. Don't look sad. Look like this is a step. We're on our way. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Take another question in the middle. Thank you, and thank you for this talk. It was really inspiring to, uh, I mean, maybe not very cheerful, but inspiring to listen to that um, recap. And my question concerns uh, social reproduction specifically, that you also um, talked about in your previous book and I wonder how your perception of that sphere and also of organizing around it um, for example in the feminist strike has kind of changed in the in the last couple of years and how you see that potential as as resistance no th no thank you so much and um, and, I, and I am I didn't say it here but I think part of what we're living through is um it's increasingly difficult to split something called the sphere of social reproduction from other spheres of life and the kind of increasing um, decentering of wagedness and dispersal of economic activity, including the spaces of leisure, kind of, you know, I think it's an extension of housewifeization, which I do talk about, you know, following me as in the first book, but, um, but again, in unpredictable ways. So I think there's, and again, I think people are trying to organize around that. So again, people of my age and older, um, I, don't, you know, I don't wish to put people down, put myself down, but there was, I think, um, a too static idea of where social reproduction happened. Because there's still an idea of, you know, we can see the space of formal work and we can see the space that supplements the space of formal work. As all of that becomes much more kind of like this and people all doing very different things, and which is also having an impact on our households, our intimate relations, how we remake ourselves and each other. How could it not? Because that other model was based around a wage-centeredness. I think, um, again, th there's a kind of need for both conceptual agility and um, kindness and openness to each other as we find ways of saying, well, this is, this is the realm of social reproduction. What does it do? What it, does it not do? I love... I love lots of things about women's strike, but I also think it doesn't quite touch because it it come of course it comes from and, and there's lots of good reasons to carry on historically based movements because you remake them as you do them again. But women's strike is still based around an idea that there's blokes going to work somewhere, isn't it? And that the women are not going to work unless it has all kinds of hidden assumptions within it. And um and also, just in a practical way, a good friend of mine who's involved in women's strike would say, 
and my kids are very little, I say, actually, I'm afraid it's very, very difficult for me to do women's strike because I can't go on strike with a you know, three-year-old. <laughs> no, they don't, that doesn't work. With a toddler, my, my striking, which, you know, that's a practical reason. But I do think um, making visible different elements of social reproduction in order to say, oh, and look, it's this and this and this. And also that the space of social reproduction has been squeezed for many. That's the other thing I think. I did write about that a bit in this book. That some of, even the stuff that we quite rightly complained about, just as we complained about um, the exploitation through the wage, is not really available to people now. The idea of the practice of social reproduction within the household, how... In, however, you know, hugely horrific, open to violence and abuse that they have been, even they are not open to many, if not most, people now, including people who are in more secure kinds of spaces. You know, again, I, I haven't brought the figures, but I think people know how many people named women work at how, outside the workplace, how many people work multiple jobs, how many people live in homes where... Um, homes where they do not have access to cooking facilities or shared social space. So then it's like, well, what, when we talk about social reproduction, well, is it, is it the naan shop on the corner, which is basically where my household eats its evening meal? You know, you know, what, what is the dispersal of that? There? I'm not being very clear. I'm just thinking, I just think that's an in, it's a challenge for us, isn't it, to say, look, this clearly there's social reproduction because we are still all alive. What is its pattern in our lifetimes? What um, traditional patterns does it still use? What new innovations occur in this kind of influx space of, and then like, where can we put some interventions? Some of which might be big mass strikes, some of which might be other more modest or localized demands some of which might be attempts to regulate um, task-based, you know, things that people get, monetized activity and other activity. You know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Sorry. Thank I'll try you. and talk not so much for everyone as well. Sorry. Uh, let's uh, take a question from uh, online, Luam. So we have a question from Gol Mucky. Would you point to the rise of right-wing globally as a recognition of racial capitalism? And the second question is, um, capitalist economy resists the dismantling systemic structures of privilege. How can buy-in be improved in a timely manner, given the overall benefits to all? Could you just read the second one again? Sorry, because I didn't yeah. properly hear. Capitalist economy resists the dismantling system structures of privilege. How can buy-in be improved in a timely manner, given the overall benefits to all? Right. I'm not sure I altogether understand the second question, but I'll give it a go. Me too. <laughs> in terms of the global right, I do, I do think that the uneven rise of the global right is a battle around the terms of privilege under um, changing phases of racial capitalism. Some of that's explicit, isn't it? Like, you know, Trumpism was pretty explicit about that. Brexit was pretty explicit. Some of the... Uh, Bolsonaro was pretty explicit, actually. I'd argue that Modi is pretty explicit. Modi is pretty openly around kind of remobilizing a, differently, a different logic of racialized identity in a fascistic mode to expel and destroy some other elements of the community. Um, I do... I kind of agree that that's about a moment of crisis as well. No, the left always say this. Oh, it looks like it's getting terrible, but don't worry, because the other side are in crisis, we're nearly winning. I must try and stop being that person, because that's just laughable, isn't it? But it is worth bearing in mind when, when our class, and when those who wish us ill um, are able to use softer, more disguised hegemonic tools and when they use outright violence and repression. It might not mean the same thing in every place, but I think people understand that the mobilization of outright violence and repression is not always or often an indication of stability and strength in the other team. But I, I understand that there's local factors, but, you know, also that, but there's also global coordination. You know? Some of those people, that, they talk. And they say, your plebs and our plebs. 
We're all angry in similar ways. What can we do? Let's build a gas pipeline. Knock their houses out. Um, the other question, I guess, I might be misunderstanding, so let me have a go and maybe let them come back. I think I'm hearing a call about how foolish, you know, that how we cannot rely on reason because people are bought off by the promises of capitalist culture and that some people do very well out of it and so you know you can't can't change things of course i think people understand that um i and probably most people who wish to mount a critique of capitalism as a totalizing dehumanizing system do not think it's going to be made better by um polite lobbying that that, that and I tried to say at the beginning that I think the resurrection of, of very energetic abolitionist politics is an indication that that is a belief across a, a range of struggles. You know, that, not saying you never lobby, but basically, you know, you can't reform this. This, this even more than the police, you can't reform this. So, um, so then the question becomes, not so much, oh, can we have a reasoned argument? Will people give up their privilege? but how we stop thinking about privilege as the term. The thing about capitalism is it'll eat more and more of us. I think we're in that space, aren't we? That we've had, again, like through a part of the 20th century, some parts of the world um, could have actually a quite short number of decades of relative stability and relative prosperity and the growth of a social wage and welfare as we have still are nostalgic for it very small blip of time for only a segment of the globe and a moment of um, massive growth after the Second World War and massive popular movements for different equality within those societies. We're not there now, are we? Now we're in a time when even when people who thought they were going to have that angry because they're obviously not going to have it and their kids are going to have even less and other people who thought, oh, I'm going to have development and have those things can see that that's just off the table altogether. Yeah. You're not going to have a hospital and a school and university. You're lucky if you're going to have a road in your street because the employers have all moved out of your neighbourhood. You're going to live in Flint and never have clean water from the beginning of your life till the end. That's, that's a different set of non-promises. So I think the bit that makes me more hopeful is I think that the veil is off. You know, yes, in my... My, uh, I'm very, very old, probably can tell from both how I speak and how I dress and how I look and all of those things. But in my earlier life, um, it did feel, I think, even in Britain, that there was a promise. Thatcherism was, despite Thatcherism being a time of extreme immiseration and actually extreme state violence, there was still the um, trace of a promise to enough people. Thatcherism wasn't only a political project which says, all of you be frightened because we've given the cops riot shields. Thatcherism was a political project which says, yes, loads of money, you can all have be a home-owning democracy. That people, that there was a subjectification which had some promise. I do not see a subjectification that has much of a promise for many, if any, now. So that's a different moment. That's a moment where billionaires and us the ones who think they're going to escape climate crisis by flying off in a rocket and everyone else. That, that's the beginning of the conversation. I'll take another uh, question from the room. Thank you. Um, thank you for, for your talk. Um, you started the talk with alluding to, um, to Gaza and the horrors that we are witnessing today. Um, and certainly at a time when we are witnessing this genocidal campaign and this ethnic cleansing of Gaza, um, like thinking through Gaza in relation to, um, to racial capitalism, um, I'm, like, I'm wondering you know, how it's changing your, your thinking, particularly in terms of um, like when you were talking, and since you know, I am thinking about that, I was thinking about the politics of, of time and how it's deployed by particularly Western governments. For example, no one is in a rush for a ceasefire, but of course everyone is in a rush to 
uh, when it comes to the Red Sea and any kind of hindrance to, um, to profit and, and kind of international trade. Mm -hmm. So the kind of the, the speed to which they act when it comes to, um, to, to profit, mm -hmm. while the slowness when it comes to, um, to human life. So the, the, my question is, is this, is this new? Or actually, are we going back to the kind of the, the clarity of power structures during colonial times and, you know, like the East India Company and, and the, the massacres that, that happened in tandem with that? So are we, how can we make sense of, um, is it a matter of return or is it actually something new that, that's going on? No, thank you so much for that question. And um, yeah, you can, that's also why, why I'm kind of, a lot of me feels like, you know, what is the point? I want to burn my books. What, forget about a whole set of books about, oh, the futures of racial capitalism. Our question to each other is now, um, what is it to live in a time of genocide? What is our responsibility to others, humans? How, what is survival for us and for all others? What, what are the terms of, that we're on the planet together? And um, why is there such a huge gap between um, the institutions of political activity that I have known in this country, which include direct action, you know, not only I'm not an electoral focus person, and our ability to remake the world with the urgency that is needed. And so I, I really just have to apologize. I thought I couldn't even give this talk today. I'm astonished that I managed to, because I feel like, what is the point? What is the point of us doing this? But equally, I really appreciate your question. I do think that, um, there's always, I think there's always a bit of a pressure in academic circles. Like everything you write, it's all oh, the new, new, newness. And, I, and I, I know I fall into that, but I'm not sure that future, what I, in my head, need to de-link future, 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 futurity, what would you call it, like future-lookingness and newness. So as you say, that we always need to look ahead, but it may be the devil changes shape just to become the same thing again. And I think you're right that both some of the things that I describe about the casting out um, of the terms of any sovereign nation, of the making absolutely abject, of um, a complete disconnect between the terms of how we think of um, our human and legal responsibilities to each other as humans and the terms of economics, which we have, that's the longer, you're quite right, that's the longer history of human economic life, isn't it? That's, that's the normality. But we've had kind of our view clouded by the small welfareist gestures of the 20th century. And now it feels like that's another way that the veil is ripped. I'll take one final question uh, in, the, in, in the back. Uh. Uh, thank you for the talk, first of all, and obviously. Uh, it's very interesting. Yes, there's a really interesting person that I think frames my question where it was a person saying refugees are not responsible for the housing crisis. It's greedy politicians and rich landlords that are. And it's very surprising that we actually have to say it because obviously Rupert Murdoch and his media calls are creating this lies that, you know, refugees are the problem from it. But equally on the other side where, you know, you see things like DI training, etc., unconscious bias training, whatever, you know, being done by organizations like BlackRock and NatWest. And when you look at what they're actually doing to you know Africa and South America I don't care about unconscious bias training I care that you're stealing their resources mm -hmm. and uh, my question is to that what do we have to do where people are stopped blaming or you know having useless ideas like DI training or blaming refugees when we should be looking at the root cause of this issue you know racial capitalism what has to be done for you know those things to take place no, well, again, thank you so much, and that's, you know, you put much more succinctly what I was trying to say about the move away from I the idea that it, racism is something that kind of a bad will thing that happens between two individuals you can teach people out of, and racism is the structure of violence that decides who lives and who dies in the world, which is, you know, which is a long, long history. Um, but I think, so I sound a bit soft here, I think we all have to... Um, we have to be more explicit to ourselves and to our close comrades and colleagues about our tactical choices. Now, I don't want to say that there's never a tactical choice to pretend to engage in a reformist process, because I've done loads of that. More for me, had my partner 
chew my ear off when I get home. How many hours of your life you've got to waste that? I said, oh, but there might be a little opening and then we'll... <laughs> so maybe that's not a good sales point for that. But, um, but it means partly that we need to, um, as anti-racists, need to change what we think it is to organise, doesn't it? So instead of thinking that there is racism, which is some discrete set of actions over here, and we'll find the racist, and then we'll lobby that and say, oh, remove the racist. Instead, we'll say, racism is this. Racism is when you steal from here. Racism is when you let these people die in the sea. Racism is when these people always get killed by the cops. Racism is when, in our neighborhood, the walls are so moldy and the air is so dirty that our children are dying. First, let's start from saying that is racism and then say to each other, well, what is it to mobilize against that, which, ca which is not amenable to unconscious bias training? So then we would have to think of new interventions, which I have to say might include some non-reformist reforms. You know, there might be things we do, but we, first we have to say, that's the thing. That's, don't look for the racist. Look for the violence of the racism, and then let's see what we can do together. Thank you so much, Kagi. Uh, and thank you also for a good discussion. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.